0: All right, so we have surgeons on the panel. Um, and for Phil Fleschner, I'll use monosyllabic words, uh, which means I'll use very simple, what short does that mean? words. <laughs> exactly. So what does that mean? And so this is going to be a lively discussion, I have a feeling already, but we do work closely with our surgical colleagues, so let's get started. <laughs> 37-year-old with a 12-centimeter ileal stricture now develops a 4-by-5-centimeter abscess above the stricture. How do you manage this? Is there a role for medical therapy, or is it a time for surgery? So, Asher, first to you, patient comes to you in the office uh, with this uh, abscess above
1: the stricture. What do you do? Could you just go? So, Give me the background history of this patient. I'm sorry. I was busy taking my So smoker,
0: five years, ileal Crohn's, 12 centimeter stricture, now an abscess above the stricture, no meds, previously been on mesalamine, 6MP caused nausea, never been on a biologic.
1: Okay, so this incorporates uh, several important points, uh, some of which most importantly specific for this patient. First of all, she's not been uh, treated with adequate medical therapy. Ms. Alameda, as we all know, is not effective therapy, certainly if you started that kind of therapy relatively recently, 6-MP she hasn't been on. So I assume this patient has been on no adequate medical therapy. Having said that, uh, I doubt this patient's gonna end up in the short term without surgery. Uh, somebody who develops an abscess above a stricture almost certainly has an obstructing stricture. What I would do for this patient is drain the stricture, uh, start talking to her about surgery, unless there's a lot of evidence that this stricture has a major inflammatory component, uh, basically drain the stricture and send her all actively to surgery. And I think we'll probably get into more discussions about uh, inflammatory strictures, uh, stenotic strictures, and how to distinguish them.
0: All right, so Scott, you're hearing that Osher saying drain the abscess is probably going to need surgery. I guess my question for you as a surgeon, if you were to see this patient, what and how do you drain the abscess, is that important? And if you drain the abscess, is this somebody you automatically go to surgery, or do you send them back to Osher?
2: So in uh, in training the abscess, the years of taking them to the OR and and doing it in that setting are are long gone. And so now we try, if possible, to use our radiology colleagues to help with this, and they'll oftentimes use ultrasound or CT guidance to do this. Um, I think it's important that you talk to them and tell them that you know, although it's uncommon, uh, they can the patient can develop an intercutaneous fistula as a result of this. So you want to make sure that wherever this drain goes in, while they can access the abscess, that they still have a nice area that they could potentially pouch should a, a fistula manifest itself. But um, typically, if you're uh, you know these these abscesses occur because you have an ulcer that's located above a uh, a stricture, and it tends to be a kind of a high pressure zone and you get penetration and perforation and the resultant abscess in that setting. And so if it's a structure that's not uh, largely inflammatory, then you're looking at an operation uh, in order to get this patient over this episode. And the timing of that, it, there's no right answer to that. Some places their philosophy is to uh, kind of optimize the patient with nutrition and whatnot, antibiotics over a week's time and then go in. Other places will wait six weeks and then uh, uh, subject the patient to an operation at that point.
0: All right, so then Karen, patient sees Asher in New York. He sends in to Scott in Chicago, gets a a drain placed radiographically, drains nicely placed, the abscess seems drained. Patient says, I absolutely don't want an ostomy. What do you tell the patient, knowing that they're going to need surgery? What's your discussion with the patient?
3: I think that's a reasonable option, assuming the patient is nutritionally doing well. So um, in this patient, I would want to know what their nutritional status is, if they've lost any weight preoperatively, if they're able to tolerate oral, an oral diet, and um, and what their albumin is. In, in a setting when you're operating on these patients in a delayed fashion, when the um, abscess has already been uh, drained and you you have sepsis control, um, it's reasonable to put the patient back together uh, without an ostomy. Um, sometimes using exclusive enteral nutrition preoperatively can help um, optimize that and improve their nutritional nutritional status and inflammatory burden uh, before surgery. Now on the other hand, if the patient's on steroids are nutritionally uh, not doing so well, then you know I would Strongly counsel the patient to, you know, have a have an ostomy.
0: So it sounds like there are comments to your left. So it sounds like ostomy if the nutrition's bad, if the steroids are high. Um, Mina, we'll let you go first, then okay. Phil.
4: Okay. I I just want to jump backwards a couple of comments and say that. This is a woman who, as I think Asher pointed out, hasn't really been treated as aggressively or treated at all. Um, And now she's walking into a whole new bunch of things. Uh, We've got to start medical therapy. You've got to have maybe IR drainage. You might need to have surgery. I just want to remind everyone to please get your surgeons involved early. And and um, and have them meet with the patient because nobody likes that first meeting to be on the way to the OR because this abscess is now you know it's untrainable or the stricture has gotten worse. Even if she doesn't end up at surgery, it's good for her to have that. Uh, that conversation with the surgeons early and for the surgeons to know her um, because she's somebody who may have to have surgery down the road anyways. And we should be involving our surgical teams sooner, I think, these patients. So I think
0: that's a common theme at this meeting. And certainly what I appreciate working with the surgeons is we work as a team. The surgeon should get involved earlier. So Phil, <laughs> comments?
5: If I could just expand on Karen's point about the stoma, I think it's very unlikely the patient's going to need a stoma. But quite frankly, as a surgeon, If a patient comes to me and says, I absolutely do not want a stoma, I'm going to tell that patient to go see another surgeon because that's an intraoperative decision that I have to make for that patient because sometimes the operative field, although it's unlikely in this patient that she's going to need one, we as surgeons cannot have our hands handcuffed literally in terms of what we can or cannot do because obviously we're doing this for the right thing for the patient. The only thing I would add is that if I understand Asher's point, I I hope you're not going to give the medication now (laughs) You're not going to start giving the patient a biologic now before surgery to try to, quote, optimize the patient and reduce the amount of the resection, are you? So, Asher, you're going to uh,
0: try to downstage this disease with a biologic?
1: No, no, absolutely not. The point I was just making is, as an aside, the patient hasn't been medically treated leading up to this. And in terms, to, to speak to Phil's point, as a gastroenterologist, I, our IBD surgeons at Sinai are among the best. I don't think there's anyone better. There are people as good in all due respect, no one better. They know all (laughs) about this ostomy, uh, insistence on an ostomy. Some of our superb uh, non-IBD surgeons who have great outcomes, they want to, to them, it's a feather in their cap that they could do this operation and not have the patient go home with an ostomy. I literally will plead with them think about doing an ostomy, talk to the patient about it. I spend a long time with the patient saying, this is a good thing. The worst thing you want to have is a surgeon who's a bit of a cowboy or cowgirl, uh, doing anastomosis in a place that recently had an abscess, is infected, and then have a breakdown. Then all hell breaks loose with, then you need an ostomy, then you need a re-anastomosis, then it might break down again. So I think it's essential, besides the surgeon, that we speak to the patient that this is an important feature.
4: And, and sometimes these patients will go to the surgeon, come back to you, the physician, and say, I don't want to have an ostomy. I can't have an ostomy." And yeah, we have to have that conversation because they need to be able to go back to the surgeons with a, a greater understanding and acceptance of what might actually be the best option for them.
0: So this is perfect. You've all hit on the take-home points, except nobody said smoking cessation. Oh. Maybe that was just <laughs> so obvious. Um, but. Draining the abscess, and I think Scott said and is correct that this this is a different abscess, and that it's a penetrating ulcer above a high-pressure structure. <coughs> Patient's going to need surgery. The panel completely agreed. Abscess drainage is the first management, and then as Karen and Phil got into, I think the ostomy decision one is sometimes a game time or intraoperative decision. We as gastroenterologists need to prepare them, and I think Asher, I completely agree with you. You don't want somebody having an anastomosis. That fails. That is worse than anything, and we've seen that with their J pouches. We've seen that with the the uh, anastomoses. So, um, good discussion. Let's move on to the second case. So this is a 30-year-old with one year of 30 centimeters of active TI disease and anal rectal ulcers, now with an enterovesicular fistula. There were some questions that came in on this, so I'm glad that we're uh, talking about this. The medicines, in this case, the patient's been on azathioprine, two milligram per kilogram, intermittent budesonide. And the question then is, how does the surgeon approach this, and how does the gastroenterologist approach this? So, You can see that, um, actually I have some other images, that this is a patient who looks like they have a fistula between the small bowel and the bladder. And they have active Crohn's in the ilium and also the anal rectal area. So the question becomes, how do you approach this? And then let's start with Scott. Is this a definite slam on surgery or are you sending them for some type of medicine?
2: So again, it depends on the clinical situation. Usually these anerovesical fistulas are a first-timer. They're someone that has not had a bowel resection for their disease. And about a third of these individuals also have a fistula to the sigmoid colon. Um, and, and so if it's associated with a stricture or an abscess, then typically they're gonna end up needing an operation. In in the past, we we're always worried about this ascending pyelonephritis, but that actually doesn't occur very often at all. And so if you don't have any of these confounding variables, then you could uh, potentially consider medical therapy. Uh, but uh, if there's stricturing or concomitant abscess um, or Ileo-sigmoid fistula, then you're going to think long and hard about doing an operation. The caveat is this rectal disease. If there's significant rectal inflammation and there is sigmoid colon involvement, um, then um, even if it's not diseased, you may have to do a small sleeve resection, and then you're doing an anastomosis in diseased bowel. And so if there's significant rectal inflammation, you're going to push the envelope on medical therapy. So I want
0: to get Karen and Phil's input from a surgical standpoint. But first, Mina and Asher. In this case, uh, enterovesicular fistula patient comes you. Let's just say there's no obvious stricture that we see. So what do you do?
1: Okay, so, so in this case, this is very different than the last case. First of all, this patient also has never had adequate medical therapy mm-hmm. at all, let's say the azathioprine was or was not with adequate 6-TG levels. (laughs) So in the absence of sepsis, in the absence of uh, significant abscess there, uh, most enterovesicular fistula do not result in ascending pyelonephritis. uh, Dan President, Bert Korlitz, back in the days when you could write a New England Journal paper just on a retrospective series, wrote a large retrospective series on enterovesicular fistula. Nobody got into trouble with an ascending pyelonephritis. You can have new material, you can have back. Uh, recurrent uh, cystitis, UTIs, a significant uh, pyelonephritis is not common. So this patient, some of these we can close with our opponent, uh anti-TNF. For this patient, I would go with infliximab. Uh, I would not be in a hurry to go to surgery for this patient for several reasons. This patient is high risk for postoperative recurrence. Um, and since I'm going to use an anti-TNF, probably infliximab in this patient Anyway, I'd rather get this patient well and not do the surgery. What are her risk factors? She's relatively young. She's only had one year of surgery, uh, one year of disease before she would come to surgery. She's had 30 centimeters of disease. And Steve Hanauer had a series that the amount of bowel you resect is the amount of bowel that will recur. So she's going to have had uh, significant bowel at risk. And she has these anal rectal ulcers. So I'd like to try and get that better better with the same infliximab. So she has a number of reasons that short of sepsis or some pressing need for surgery, I really want to treat her very aggressively with our best medical therapy.
0: So specifically before Mina, dose of infliximab and combination? Absolutely. High dose, combination. Well, let's be specific. So what Um, dose?
4: I I would start at 10. I would aim for high levels. This is a situation we've been talking about High levels. levels. Uh, Above 10 for the infliximab. I'd keep the azathioprine on combination therapy. She's a high risk person. She's young. She's got TI disease. She's got um, uh, anal disease. This is somebody, and she's got a complication. This is somebody who needs to have aggressive medical therapy. The question also, though, some of our surgeons have often pointed out that these don't often close these type of fistulas don't often close. So again, this is a situation where you're going to need, you want to get your surgeons to know her and for her to know the surgeons because you're going to try your best, but you may end up going to surgery eventually. anyway.
0: So Phil and Karen, it sounds like at some point, my, my feeling always is if there's a hole between two epithelial lined organs, it's different than a perianal or perineal area that there's the, the, Intraabdominal neighborhood, if you will. So Crohn's occurs in the ilium, it's severe, it penetrates through and whatever sits next to it. So Scott mentioned ili-sigmoid, we see that quite a bit, where sigmoid may not be involved primarily, but the ilium is, tacks up to this sigmoid. Same thing with the, the bladder. So how do you guys approach this? What do you do, Karen and Phil? Karen first, then Phil?
3: So surgically, you can, I mean, um, you can generally Try this laparoscopically. Oftentimes, there's a significant fibrotic component to it, so um, pinching it off, you know, just with your fingers, often works. Um, there usually is not a large hole in the so bladder. Wait,
0: so, so, to a gastroenterologist, explain what pinching <laughs> it off with your fingers means.
3: You <laughs> <laughs> like this? Oh, okay.
6: okay, he understood the words, right? Yeah.
0: All right. So you showed me this. It peels so off. Fine. Go ahead. Um,
3: and, and you generally don't have to, you know, close the bladder. Oftentimes, just draining the bladder with a Foley catheter and doing a um, cystogram in several days to assure the holes close before you remove the Foley catheter works. Um, sometimes you can place omentum um, or some other structure between um, the bladder and your anastomosis uh, to protect it. That's generally how we deal with it.
0: All right, good. So, Phil?
5: I don't know. You know, I, I'm taking a completely different tact on this. I, I'm, I don't want my 30-year-old daughter having her bladder filled with terminal ileal contents day in, day in and day out. I don't think that's good, okay? There's something inherently wrong about that. I think that to think that biologics actually heal fistulas that literally are microns in, di- microns in length, okay? This is what these fistulas are. I think you're also fooling yourself, Okay, they don't do that. I think I know there have been some reports of, of healing with biologics, but I wonder, in fact, how durable those those um, those uh, uh, responses are. This is a 30-year-old with a relatively short segment of disease. Take the thing out, start over. Okay, start over. She's 30 years old. Why do you want a bladder? I mean, I understand if she's 70 years old and medically, you know, unfit. Sure, I get that, and not even necessarily even for ascending, you know, for, for pyelonephritis. It's just something inherently wrong about well, leaving so, the bladder soaked so thermally. so let me
0: let me push you a little bit Phil so first of all we're saying she has 30 mm-hmm. centimeters of active disease so are you going to that's that? one foot by the way all right so th- <laughs> the surgeon it's not, it's not 30 inches uh, so do you do a resection and the repair of the fistula and then move on is that what you're saying yeah, you do a, an ileocolic
5: resection you as, you, as was stated, you pinch the fistula. Usually you don't have to repair the bladder itself. You usually keep a catheter in for about a week. These patients do very well in terms of their long-term bladder function. And you start over. So and what let, me, happens? Let,
0: let me ask you a question. I have a feeling I know the answer. Is there such thing as downgrading inflammation for the surgeons by preoperatively giving a biologic? Voodoo. Karen? Mm-mm. So that's, that's actually two syllables, but that <laughs>
3: I mean, we try that in in situations where the patient has extensive, you know, panintestinal disease or they've had multiple prior resections and you really want to limit the resection. But in reality, I think that generally does not work as well. All
0: right. So you're saying voodoo also. Uh, Scott, are you agreeing? Are we just kidding ourselves as gastroenterologists that throw
2: these patients on medicines? Yeah, we don't understand this disease, and uh, <laughs> it, it, that, the, the conclusion <laughs> of this <laughs> conference <laughs> is we have no idea what we're talking. You <laughs> know, it, it's, it, it's um, you know I've had patients that have diffuse disease where I gave them a proximal stoma and go back in six months later, and a lot of it's melted away. So it, you know, I, I think there's a component to controlling the inflammation. What you have to to be worried about is in any of these individuals is that you have non-disease bowel that's secondarily involved in all of this. Mm-hmm. And, and you don't want to be doing an operation where you have to take out non diseased bowel. And so we heard earlier uh, that we don't want to wait until a complication has a complication. And so if, if this looks like something that's, um, you know, it's a long segment, and I, I don't know how well it's going to cool off with your uh, biologics. But, um, it, again, it, it depends on the individual. And if they're looking at a, a short, long-term stoma, then I'm going to be more aggressive with medical therapy. But if it's getting them to a good situation where then I'm just trying to keep them in maintenance, uh, in a disease-free state, then I'll be more aggressive with my operative intervention.
0: So here's some take-homes, and then I think Corey has a question or two. I think we all agree if there's a stricture above any fistula, it definitely needs surgery. If there's no stricture, um, then the question is, is there truly a fistula? And I completely agree as much as I was pushing Phil that if there's a fistula going to the bladder, if there's a fistula going to the rectum, at some point this is going to require surgery. However, the third bullet point, we see this quite a bit, where the inflamed ilium is pushing against the bladder. There's no true fistula. There's no pneumateria fecal urea. But there's urinary frequency. Those patients terrify me because I think they will fistula if we don't do something. I do think that aggressive <laughs> therapy, Tamina and Asher's point, is reasonable in that area. But it's unlikely to close if there's a fistula. And then I think Corey had a couple questions that we want to get to before we move to the third case.
6: Yeah, so from the audience, there were a couple of questions about prophylactic use of antibiotics. So, Osher, you know, let's not take the extreme here that the patient's incredibly symptomatic, but somebody who's either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, but you know they have a, uh, a an enterovesicular fistula, are you using antibiotics in these cases?
1: If the patient... Well, if they're passing some bacteriuria and they're having some cloudy urine from time to time, I don't want them on chronic antibiotics. If they have evidence of real uh, UTIs, I would, but the writing is on the wall. Now, I made a case for starting with medical therapy, but again, I I would make the qualifying statements is that most of those patients, I think, will probably go to surgery. If I can get that patient better long-term, I will. Uh, Phil refers to, you know, case reports, but there are patients we've all had who really quiet down. The fistula might not heal. You might still see it on the imaging, Um, but again, uh, that patient, I was driven to medical therapy initially. The anal rectal ulcers, I know that's going to be a problem. And I see the last bullet here is rectal vaginal fistula, similar management pr- principles. And I think that's really, uh, I would take that off the table because that's a whole different uh, discussion.
0: All right, so let's move on to the <coughs> last case. Um, and we'll start with Mina uh, first in terms of how you would approach this. This is a 29-year-old with active ileocecal Crohn's. Newly diagnosed, so no medicines now has three small, less than one centimeter interloop abscesses that are too small to drain. And the question is surgery, medicines, how do you approach this?
4: Um, So I think one of the keys here is too small to drain. Um, You talk to your surgeons, but there's not a whole lot that they can do here. Uh, We see this a lot in patients who are newly admitted to the hospital, and they've never been diagnosed with Crohn's, and this is how they get diagnosed with their Crohn's disease. They come in, and now they get this diagnosis, and they're (laughs) typically sent out on antibiotics and with no follow-up or follow up in six months. And then I see them back when now the abscess is huge or they've had some kind of a complication. So, yes, you want to start with, you know, antibiotics, but this is somebody that you probably are going to want to be, again, trying to treat medically as aggressively. And so you want to make sure they've got good follow-up with a gastroenterologist and that they can be followed and monitored very closely because they're going to need that team approach to their Crohn's disease.
0: So, Scott, you heard the first two cases were... One was slam, don't go to surgery because of a stricture. The second was, I think we all agreed, need surgery. What about this?
2: Uh, typically not. I mean, if they have peritonitis, sure. But, um, you know, these abscesses that are less than 3 centimeters in size. They're, they're not, or you can't reach them. Um, they, uh, you, you can't drain them. And uh, so they usually will sterilize with a parenteral antibiotic therapy. The caution is there was a German study where about 10% actually had yeast in them. So if you're not responding, you might add something uh, against uh, that type of microbial. But uh, these typically will, will sterilize, and uh, unless there's a direct communication with the bowel, you're, you're probably able to, to avoid the operating room. Great. So, Corey, you had a question or a comment?
6: Yeah, there's a question from the audience about timing of re-imaging. And, Asher, maybe going back to you, you're putting someone on antibiotics. When are you going to re-image them to see if this thing's getting better or worse, or are you not?
1: So a patient like this who, first, I want to... I want to, quote-unquote, sterilize this area before treating them medically. I'd probably give them two weeks of antibiotics at the very least, make sure any evidence of uh, whatever brought them to me has healed, all their inflammatory markers are down, at least two weeks of antibiotics before starting to treat their uh, medical therapy. And I don't see how many centuries of disease and what my imperative to start them right away, number one. Number two is I should have made a point actually for case one, two, and three, which Dan present taught us, and then subsequently there's been very good data. Steroids have no place in here, and steroids will probably make things worse for sure, not probably for sure, uh, if there's abscess, and even hot inflammatory disease phlegmons, they might more likely develop fistul and abscess after that. So steroids are off the table here, even after you sterilize the bowel. In this patient, I'd say at least a couple weeks before re-imaging.
0: So it sounds like the patient got antibiotics and then had a post-op follow-up, and Karen, you're seeing this now, Uh, sorry, post-antibiotic follow-up, sounds like the, or looks like the abscess is smaller, or at least there's a response. Is this a time that you say, okay, gastroenterologist, go ahead and do your thing, or are you doing something differently?
3: No, I think that's reasonable. The patients clearly clearly had a response. You would obviously also follow follow their clinical response and how they're uh, doing. Um, As surgeons, we love to operate, but I think this is a clinical scenario where uh, it's all GI for now.
0: So take-home message one, we have no idea what they're doing. (laughs) Take-home message two, surgeons love to operate. So I think we probably knew that already. So we see this, that interloop abscesses occur. Uh, Often, my opinion is sometimes these are just from such a significant transmural inflammatory process, they almost get these transmural bacterial um, translocation or a small sinus tract. And it sounds like everybody's agreeing that medical therapy first. Um, Corey, I know you said there were some questions that came up, maybe not relevant to this, but a lot of questions, and maybe you can start with Phil for this one.
6: Yeah. uh, Phil, questions came asking us to go back to rectovaginal fistulas and comment a little bit further because it may not be exactly the same. So first, maybe you fill to comment, and then Mina will go to you about medical therapy. But tell us your approach to these rectovaginal fistulas. Uh, you're talking medical or surgical first, sorry? Surgi- uh, well, Phil, you can well, talk about surgical the
5: first, first. The first thing you generally do in these patients is there's a difference between, and I can show you guys later in a the diagram, there's a difference between an anal vaginal fistula and a recto vaginal fistula. Rectovaginal fistulas literally have no space between them, okay, and that, as opposed to an anal vaginal fistula which has the sphincter. The reason that's important is the longer distance you have, it increases the surgical options and potentially improves the potential for medical therapy to work. So the, almost always these patients, it involves an examination under anesthesia, you plus or minus an MRI, potentially the use of a acetone to drain any additional abscesses, and then send them off to our GI colleagues for further evaluation at that point. So maybe, Mina, you want to discuss where to go from there.
4: Yeah, thanks, Mina. <laughs> Um, Sure. So now you're getting this patient and, again, working closely with your surgeons, you're going to want to optimize their medical management. This is somebody who's got complex, uh, complicated disease, They either perirectal, perianal disease. These are the patients that are going to need more aggressive medical therapy. This is not somebody, I, I mean, this is somebody I arguably would probably consider combination therapy. I'm going to want to make sure that... For me personally, I try to do at least therapeutic drug monitoring, maybe even proactive therapeutic drug monitoring, um, with a goal towards, you know, just trying to be as aggressive as possible with treatment. So I,
5: I should point out, I'm sorry I'm interrupt, I should point out that it's very important at the time of the EUA to examine the rectum, because yeah. the influence of proctitis and this cannot be uh, over uh,
0: underestimated. The so look at the rectum, and then Scott, you had a comment?
2: Yeah, typically these are short fistulas, and so um, and Vic Fazio always taught us not to put setons in these because oftentimes they're very small. And uh, if it's very short, if there's a something going on within the RV septum there, with then yeah, we'll we'll drain all of that. But typically, leaving the setons off the table in, in this type of thing and going, uh, making sure that any localized sepsis is controlled, but going right to the medical therapy.
5: I, I agree with you on the rectovaginals. If the anal vaginals, I think the cetons have some importance in terms of, because the tracks tend to be longer, potential incidence of purulence within it.
0: So I think just a simplistic overview in terms of how we look at intra-abdominal fistula. So if there's no stricture, and it's a newly diagnosed Crohn's patient with a long segment of active disease... Um, These are patients that if they have an abscess and it's drained, I think they're gonna require surgery at some point, but if there's not a stricture, it's probably reasonable to consider treatment. We can get comments from the audience in a minute. But then re-imaging or re-looking at three months, if there is a persistent abscess, or certainly if there's development of a stricture, these patients need surgery, and I completely agree with that. If there's no abscess, then I think we probably are gonna follow them a year later, look again. Um, In patients who definitely need surgery, these are patients who, one, we should minimize steroids, optimize nutrition. I think Karen started with that comment, which uh, I think we all fully agree with. Um, if the abscess is fully drained, then the question is whether the patient can go straight for a primary anastomosis. It sounds like the surgeons are comfortable with that as long as the nutrition's okay, no narcotics, hopefully not smoking, and, and minimizing the steroids. Um, and then ultimately starting post operative treatment. We've already talked about this. I think any of these penetrating complications are high risk. Uh, Corey, do you want to ask one more question? We have about 10 seconds, and then uh, we'll wrap it up.
6: Yeah, just a quick question from the audience, which comes up all the time, which is related to when you're finally ready to pull the trigger on biologic therapy, Asher. And it was one of these patients that you skim through with repeat imaging, the abscess is finally pretty much gone or gone, and you're starting a biologic therapy. Are you overlapping it with antibiotics, and how long would you do that so, if so?
1: I think we asked that, I would give at least a couple of weeks of antibiotics. Uh, again, unless the is septic, then the patient, it's a whole different approach. It's so IV antibiotics, far more likely to go to surgery. Great.
0: So I want to really thank the panel. Excellent discussion.